This is Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. High performance. Leadership. People think overwhelm. Craziness. Craziness. No time. No time. No fun. No fun. Just work, 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 work. It's time to slow down to speed up. You owe more to yourself. This is Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Monique is a high-performance and leadership specialist. During the show, Monique and her guests will share the harsh truth behind their success stories, what it means to perform on a high level, and to be a leader in this world. It's time to take control of your time and live life limitless. This is Efficiency On Demand, and this is your host, Monique. Welcome back to another episode of Efficiency on Demand. I have an amazing guest. We just chatted already for oh, quite a bit. I hope it's not getting too late for him. And I'm super, super excited to have him on the show. We got connected again through a mutual friend. And I'm super happy to have him to um, talk about all things, obviously, tech IT, but also how he got into it and why. So let me welcome Raj Supramaya on the show. Welcome and thank you for having time, Raj. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be on your show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit who you are, where you're from, what you do, and all of the chess. Yep, I can start the history of Raj Supramaya. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what I do is I'm a tech carrier coach. I help uh, people in the tech industry get into leadership roles. And also I do speaking and writing for companies. So I speak at various conferences on different topics, which include AI, software development, and also non-tech topics like leadership, motivation, and then self-confidence, so on and so forth. So that's pretty much uh, what I do for a living. I own my own business and I've been doing this for two years now, and yeah, it's been super fun. So that's what I do. In terms of uh, my uh, history of where I come from and how I became who I am today, so my childhood goes back to my time in India. So I grew up in a conservative family, middle-class family in southern part of India, from Chennai, it's one of the five popular places in terms of IT and all that stuff in India. So that's where I grew up, and I was the, and I am the younger of two kids. And since my young age, I actually developed an inferiority complex that I was not enough, uh, partly because of my childhood experience where my dad was super smart, then my brother was a genius, like he has. Right, currently has three masters and a PhD. And then there I was, this average Joe who uh, wasn't that great in academics, <laughs> but grew up in the same family, right? But so that's where, that's kind of my background. And yet throughout my childhood, my dad did everything to give us the best possible childhood experience. But as part of that, uh, there was also a lot of comparison with me not being my brother in terms of academic success. And my, my dad, throughout his life, he pretty much, entire life, he actually 
he got scholarships. He has never paid for education ever. And uh, that's him, right? And then I have my brother. So I was constantly being compared to my brother. And that started this whole, uh, that was my first uh, impact in terms of uh, how I got into anxiety, fear of rejection. And also, I, uh, I loved hanging out with people, playing outdoor sports, right? And and I used to ask questions about things which I didn't understand. And in my culture, where I come from, you don't ask questions because there are certain rules and regulations and that's pretty much it. So you need to follow that blindly. And if you ask questions, you get reprimanded for it. So anyways, the point is because of... Uh, the constant comparison and then being reprimanded for asking questions. I went into a, I built this false image about myself that I was not, I don't matter. I was not good enough. I had fear of rejection, anxiety. Funny thing is, even if I like, talk to a girl, I used to feel as if I'm just going to get nervous breakdown, right? So that's kind of my childhood experience where I grew up with all these fears and I had low self-esteem, high self-doubt. And also, fun fact, just like a lot of people I've talked to, I I used food as a coping mechanism. So because of all these social pressures and stuff, I kept eating, eating, and eating. And because of that, of course, I gained weight. And then my family and friends used to make fun of me. They used to call me elephant when I was growing up, right? So all these things kind of scarred me quite a bit and yeah that's kind of my childhood experience and that was one of the major that was in my life there were two major things which happened which got me to where I am today that was the first major part of my life but yes and since then I've uh, I had I had my triggered events which happened and then I managed to changed my life. And right now, yeah, I'm an international keynote speaker and I help to impact other people's lives through my speaking, writing and coaching. So Amazing. All right. Let's, let's dive in a little bit there because I'm sure a lot of people want to know how you got out of this and, and what you did actually to change all of that. So walk me through a little bit. You're a kid in India, you know, you're in Chennai it's a total different culture than America. So you're in America right now. Right. People who didn't hear that maybe, <laughs> or who didn't yep. make the connection. <laughs> so you're growing up in India. You just talked about your brother being such a genius and you're, you feel like you're not, maybe you are, you just don't know. Maybe you're a different genius. And so you're there and you feel like you're so inferior. So what do you do? What do you do on a daily basis like to uh, either like or maybe what when was the point that you felt like you had to change something to get out of that? Right. So I think the trigger event happened during my second year of my undergrad. Mm -hmm. So I still remember this vividly because uh, I was in my room and my parents and my brother were advising me what's going to what's the best career path for me and what I need to do after I graduate. And after two hours of endless discussion about this, all this uh, anger and anxiety and 
oppression, <laughs> I would say, which had bottled down inside me for 14 years since I grew up, kind of exploded. And then uh, the Pandora feelings came out at that point of time. That's when I told them that, stop it. I've been, for 14 years, I lived a false life. I'm tired of living such a life and you don't know who I am. Then I, I said, I am enough, I matter. I am going to take control of my life. I'm going to strive for greatness. I'm going to show everyone that you, all of you are wrong about me. And that's when, that's when I declared power over my life. So it's made that second year of undergrad, that two hour meeting, which happened in my room, that was this big impact to whatever I'm doing right now. Wow, this is really, really powerful. But I want to kind of know, what do you think made you think it it sounds subtly, but I, I bet that it's built up before. What made you think in this moment, like, no, I actually do matter. I do have something to fulfill. I do have my own path. Like, what made you think in this moment to be able to step up and speak up and say, like, no, 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 you're all wrong and you better watch me? Yeah, because uh, so it was a gradual process. Uh, when I was in my sixth or seventh grade, I noticed like I was really good at sports, and people said, "Wow, you're really good." And it, for those of the listeners who do not know, in India, cricket is one of the sports which is it's not a sport but a religion. So just like how, yeah, just like how it's uh, football in Europe, it's cricket in India, and yeah. I was really good at it, right? And People said I was really good and I was so good that I was going to, I was preparing for state level tournaments and that's what gave me confidence that I was good at something. But unfortunately, the day before the, day before the state uh, selection, the, the practice, I actually got into a cab driven by a drunk driver and I broke my right hand and I couldn't play cricket anymore. So, but the the moral of the story is before that incident happened, I at least had, I knew that there was something in me. That is one, one instance. And then uh, whenever I hung out with the few friends I have, they told me that, Hey, you're really good in figuring out things like trying to solve problems when, People do not know what the solutions are, right? It could be different shapes or forms, but throughout my childhood, I noticed that, right? So those were some key pointers, which said that, you know, I'm good at something. And then of course, seeing uh, people around me during my first and second year of my undergrad, being super successful, being able to talk to people, being able to do whatever things they want. And I'm there watching them from a corner, uh, and I wanted to make a difference, right? So it's all those key small, small moments which actually brought me to this moment where I had the blow up with my parents. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it was all a gradual transition of small, small wins which gave me the confidence. I love that. How did your parents react? I mean, so... just to, just a, a little bit background. So when you mentioned the cultural, you know, the cultural background in India that you have all of these set rules and you just have to follow them and you just don't question them. 
it's very similar in Germany when you grow up, you know, especially mm -hmm. where I grew up in East Germany because of the history from the GDR separation, whatever. My parents grew up only in the GDR, so they didn't know anything but their hometown and they were not allowed to leave. They were not allowed to travel. They were not allowed to. So we had this wall mm -hmm. split in Germany. So it was very, right. very similar. So when you said it, I was like, oh, I know that. <laughs> I know right. what happens when you ask questions. <laughs> so tell me, what did your parents say or how did they react? <laughs> they were shocked because one thing about the Indian culture is you don't ask questions. Of course, things have changed since my generation, but I think uh, till about 10, at least five to six years ago, uh, you don't ask questions. So parents know what's best for you. The society knows what's best for you. And you just follow the norms, right? And if you by mistake question something, they view you as an outcast. So that's how they viewed me, right? They all viewed me as an outcast. And they actually, what do you say? They stopped believing in me in the sense whether I could do anything, right? So I, I was always ignored. So when this episode happened, of course, my parents were shocked. How is this guy talking back? He has never talked back to me for 14 years since I was born. 14 years, but starting from my kindergarten stuff to, to my second year of my undergrad. And they were shocked. And they, they couldn't believe that it was me who was able to talk back because I was always saying, okay, okay, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, right? And I was just tired of doing that. So yeah, to answer your question, they were pretty shocked. And then uh, they were taken aback and they didn't see that comment at all and <laughs> but i didn't let them talk though because they were talking for two hours i said you know screw this i'm going to talk about how my life has been shitty for the past 14 years now you hear me out and i i gave a monologue for half an hour and then yeah they they were just listening to me they didn't know how their actions emotionally scarred me Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of uh, an inferiority complex and uh, building a false image because of constant comparison. So, yeah, they were taken aback and they were shocked. And it was what it is. And it didn't end there. There are more stories <laughs> of how that actually transformed into bigger things. But, yeah, as in when we get through the conversation, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, and... What do you think did that do to your brother in that situation, watching all of that? Did he say something? How did he react? Did he just sneak out? <laughs> so my brother was oblivious in terms of what was happening inside me. He's a great guy. Mm -hmm. For the record, my parents and my brother, they're really great. But unfortunately, some of their actions kind of affected me and that's what we are talking about right now but my brother was uh, yeah he didn't know that uh, him being so successful had a huge impact on me growing up because uh, my parents constantly kept comparing me to him and and funny thing hilarious things which happened through the journey was uh, uh, my parents took me to an astrologer astrology is a huge thing in my culture yeah. They wanted to find out why I was so dumb. Oh, wow. So 
And then astrology said, no, he's not that dumb. So I think probably astrology is true, I guess. I don't know. But the point that there were a lot of these, then they used to take me to temples and try to pray for the higher power to give me wisdom. (laughs) So the point is, so I, I gave all these examples in that 30, 40 minute monologue which i gave and i had this breakthrough moment and then my brother yeah of course he did no one knew that i was going through all this stuff right mm-hmm. and yeah so he just like my parents he was shocked and he felt bad uh that uh throughout my childhood i had to live through that experience and yeah it's really impactful because it's just it's like a mosquito bite that's what i tell people right it biting, 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 and you keep bleeding. And then after after some time, you think, okay, bleeding is normal, biting is normal, and just live your life, right? And then at some point, you say, God damn it, now I got malaria. Now I need to take some action. <laughs> it's except I'm randomly making up an example right now, but the point is it's the same kind of effect, right? It's In my conference talks, I talk about the mosquito effect when I talk about communication and leadership, but this is mosquito effect in my life. So, yeah, I totally, I can totally understand it. It's like these little micro aggressions. I think what we can call it as well. Mm-hmm. That you can just that you constantly get, you get, you get, and one day it's just too much. It's like the last drop on the glass that's just like overflowing. Exactly, it's like a balloon waiting to explode. Yeah. And then it's a big balloon explosion. <laughs> it's so interesting. I had the same thing, but it took me way longer because I was, I think I was just constantly questioning and kind of fighting it back. And for me, because I didn't swallow all of it all the time, I was, I was saying, like, I was saying what was, you know, not working. But right. obviously I wasn't sitting down and be like, okay, this got to stop. So I was saying and kind of like fighting against it, but it took me 31 years until my inner bump would just go off. And it was when my parents actually visited me for the very first time ever on any of my travels, which was in Thailand two years ago. Uh And Ah, literally they like, and it was the tiniest thing, you know, that my mom said, I have this with my mom, basically. I love my dad to bits and pieces and also my mom. As you said, like, don't get me wrong. My parents and my sister are the best people around, right? But as you said, unintentionally, they did things that just impacted me. And that's probably with everyone around, you know, but my mom said one thing and it was like this trigger and I'm like going off. And the most hilarious thing was that I was the driver of the car because we have left side traffic here. So I locked my parents into the car and I drove them back to the hotel, which took like also about 35 or 40 minutes. And I screamed everything for from the last 31 years. I screamed it all out. And when they even just took a breath in to try to say something, I said like, you're not going to talk. I'm the one talking here now. <laughs> right. And it's, no, I it's, feel you. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that a lot of people have similar kind of experiences, but probably slightly different context. But the things you go through in your childhood, right, 
it could be different things. It definitely scars you. And yeah, I still, yeah, I see a therapist and I still do, you know, go <laughs> talk throughout these issues, right? Yeah. And, and it is what it is. And that's what a lot of people didn't realize that, yes, I'm an international keynote speaker. I have a successful coaching business. I speak and write for big companies. But underneath all that, I'm human and I'm going through my demons as well. And when people talk to me, it's funny when I speak at conferences, people say, man, you're so funny and so impactful when you speak. How do I become you? Then I said, it probably takes about 15, 20 years of going through shit to actually yeah. get an idea of becoming like, what do you want to be? So yeah, I totally relate to you. And a lot of people go through similar kind of experiences. I just wish people realize that no one is an overnight success. It, mm. You have to go through adversity first to actually know what success actually means. And that's what I tell people, my clients and whoever talks to me as well. Yeah, by no means I'm Bill Gates and stuff, but the point is, uh, yeah, I have my own story and we we are all work in progress. So. Absolutely, absolutely, I love that. So talk to me about the decision to move to the US. When did when did that happen in your life? Uh, what was the decision like? And was it just like, I got to get out of here. Uh, where can I go? Or was it like a strategic decision? Yeah, so that's a great question. So after I graduated, of course, my parents and family, they wanted me to emulate my brother and go to the U.S., do master's in computer science in these two or three universities. That's what they thought my path was. But then after that whole second year second year undergrad blow up, I, uh, figured I wanted to find me what my career path would be, what my passion is. And also I wanted to work on some of the things I've never gotten a chance to work on. Like, for example, I was tired of being an introvert. Again, I'm not saying being an introvert is a bad thing for me. I was, I hated not being able to talk to people. I hated not having friends. I hated not hanging out with people and then being myself. So I've wanted to first work on things like that before I decide on anything. So what I did was after I graduated, I uh, worked for a tech company for about three, three and a half years. And in that time frame, I did a lot of stuff. So one was, and this actually kind of started from the third year of my undergrad, my whole uh, resurrection process where I started taking part in different cultural activities. I started making new friends, getting out of my comfort zone and inserting myself in uh, difficult conversations. And also starting to do a lot of part-time jobs so that I learn some life skills and I'm forced to interact with people. And that kind of carried over to me working for about three years after graduation. And during those three years, again, I learned, I made new friends and learned a lot about myself. And then finally, I decided uh, I wanted to do something not just related to programming, but I wanted to know how consumers use software, why they 
use it, what makes one software better than, better than another. I want to know the whole process, right? Mm-hmm. And then I found out there were a couple of universities which were really good for that field, and it was called software engineering, where from start to finish of how you uh, release a software so that consumers can use it, like, for example, Facebook. What makes Facebook amazing for people to use, right? I just want to know all those details. And that's kind of related to the software engineering program. Mm-hmm. And I, and then I found out Rochester Institute of Technology in New York, Rochester, New York. It was one of the top universities for software engineering. So I thought, you know what? Why don't I give it a shot? And I was also tired of... Uh, I really wanted to change because I was tired of society and being in the same bubble and wanted to change. So I thought U.S. would be a good option. I did think about Canada, but now I'm repenting the decision. But anyways, that's a different conversation. But anyways, I chose U.S. and I came to the U.S. in 2008 to pursue my master's in software engineering. And yeah, that's how I came to the U.S. And the funny thing was I came in on August 31st, 2008, and September 6, 2008, Lehman Brothers fell and the recession started. So <laughs> it was a wonderful time for me to come to pursue my dreams and passion. But that's how I got to the U.S. though. So that's the reason I came to the U.S. I love that. So... Your plan was then to study software engineering and figure out all of the processes behind it. Mm-hmm. But what did really happen? <laughs> what really happened? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> apart from me having a plan to study software engineering, uh, I was in a different scenario where I just kind of uh, started talking about, about it, where there was a recession. And I came to the U.S. as a student on a student visa. And once the recession started, Lehman Brothers fell. They, for those of you listening, Lehman, yes, Lehman Brothers was a huge financial firm. They became non-existent within a couple of days. So that's the history. But the point is uh, Lehman Brothers fell and then the recession started, there were layoffs and no one was ready to sponsor work permits. In the US, if you want to work, you need something called a H-1B visa. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive this, uh, for companies to pay for you to work. But uh, so that happened as part of my uh, master's program, which I was not expecting. And then and just two months into my master's program, one of the professors in my course said, uh, I didn't have the right aptitude to do a software engineering program. He said, I'm giving you an out now. He said, drop the program and change universities or go back to India. That happened within two months after I came to the U.S. And so those were a couple of examples of extra things which happened. And then two more things worth mentioning was, yeah, after a year into my program. Oh, first thing is I proved that professor wrong. I still persisted and I cleared his course with a B. So that was the moral of the story. But the point was, I uh, started applying for jobs after my first year of undergrad. I mean, first year of my math. A year and a half into my master's, I started applying for jobs, for internships and stuff. Half of my 
team, half of the students in my program went back to their back to their country because it was just too hard to get jobs. But I took the other path of not giving up. So I applied for 1,293 jobs and I had an Excel sheet where I was tracking everything. Out of the 1,293 jobs, I got three internship calls for interviews for three internships and two full-time jobs and then got one internship, right? And that's and then I went to that internship and converted that into full-time by hustling and making them want me to work full-time. So those were some interesting, serious stories, but there were also some funny stories. If you want to hear, I could tell you about that. But those were, these were some things which actually made me learn a lot of things about myself in terms of how resilient I, I was. I uh, never gave up. I never took no for an answer. And yeah, so when people complain to me, so I do career coaching for a freaking business. When people complain right. to me, oh man, I applied for five jobs and I didn't get a call back. Then I would say, what kind of jobs did you apply for? Did you follow up on those jobs? What kind of resume did you post? And you're freaking complaining for five jobs. And I, I say that I applied for 1,293 jobs. Not that you have to apply for that many jobs, but I'm just saying that you need to put in the effort if you need the rewards, right? So unless you put in the effort, you cannot complain about things happening. So, but those were some uh, defining moments during my master's program and learned a lot about my personality and which gave me even more confidence that I can get shit done. And yeah, so that those were some stories. Incredible. I thought I applied to a lot of jobs because in Germany it's, I mean, by that time I applied and I got out of university a little earlier than you did. I got out in 2008, but it was a mess. And I applied for 320 something jobs. And I thought, I thought I did already, you know, and I had just like you three interviews and one job and that was a (laughs) horrible one. Horrible. Anyways, but, um, (laughs) but, uh, I, I always have love when people are like, yeah, I applied to five jobs. And I'm like, congratulations. Do you need more applause? (laughs) Right. I don't know. Yeah, I asked them, do you need my approval or what yeah. are you trying to say? Because me get approving your actions is not going to say anything because you need to get shit done if you want to go somewhere, right? right? right. Uh, I, I know before starting the podcast, you were talking about cultural experiences. Yeah. Uh, I think your reader, your listeners may find this story interesting. Uh, just to take it from a serious note to a slightly funny note, uh, I also do communication workshops. I, mm-hmm. I do intercultural communication workshops for exactly this freaking reason. So I come to the U.S. August 31st, 2008 and land in JFK Airport, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. And I get out of the gate and a person passes me and says, hey, how's it going? Then I tell him, yeah, it's going good. I just landed. But he didn't listen to me. He was so rude. He just passes me. And then I keep walking. And then another person passes me and says, hey, what's up? How's it going? 
Then I kept telling him, hey, I just came here. It was my first day. And before I had a thicker Indian accent, if you think this is thicker, oh man, you, don't, you haven't even... You haven't even heard how I was in 2008. But anywho, the point, so they, partly they didn't understand what I was saying. Uh, and another part was I didn't understand why they were so rude and not listening to me. And finally, I get out of the airport and there was this pretty woman around, I would say, 30, 35. And she asked, she said, hey, how's it going? Are you having a good day? And then... I started replying to her and I said, you know what? I am going to reply to her and make sure she knows that this is my first date. So I started talking to her and she kept walking. I kept walking with her. And then she turned to me and said, what are you doing? Then I said, you asked me, how's it going? So I'm replying to you. Then she turned, she said, weirdo. And then she left. Then only I found out that no one gives a shit in the U.S. about when you say, how's it going? Apparently it's a culture thing. So that is a funny story. So as part of my master's experience, which you were asking me a couple of minutes ago, I had to go through a lot of cultural changes. And and that was one thing, right? And second thing was I go to the cafeteria for the first time uh, in my university. And I see all these menu options. It all sounded interesting, but I had no clue what they meant. And then there was something called pepperoni. It sounded super sexy. So I said, you know what? I'm going to have a pepperoni pizza. So I got the pizza and ate it. It was amazing. And then my roommate at that time said, hey, did you have lunch? I said, yeah, I had pepperoni pizza. But I thought you were vegetarian. Yeah, I had pepperoni pizza. They had tomatoes on it. Dude, that's not tomatoes. <laughs> pepperoni is pork. So anyways, that was my first time I ate meat. So that is a, and now I have cheeseburgers and I love gyros and everything. And and we were talking about German food as well. But anyway, those were a couple of funny experiences. So when I actually talk to people, because that also boils down to communication, when you do email communication and when you're working in intercultural teams, it's really important to understand these cultural differences when you interact with them because what what words they use may not be the same meaning uh, based on the country. And uh, so, yeah, anyways, those were a couple of funny stories uh, which I found funny and people find it hilarious when I share that at, during my talks and then they said man I, I had the same experience i had the same experience and i said exactly exactly people do not think about it right so i love this so much let's please talk about it a little bit more because in my coaching i do that as well with clients when we go into high performance but leadership coaching so you and me we share that as well i do intercultural leadership coaching as well especially when it comes to teams hiring teams, but creating team culture, a lot of people are not aware that, as you just said, if you hire teams, especially remote teams from all over the world, that if you say, like, let's do this SF, a German is doing that right now. And maybe, you know, a person from Mexico is doing that, you know, maybe next week or a person... Exactly. You know, a, a person maybe in Serbia is doing that when their task from today is done and they still have time to do it by the end of the day or tomorrow. You know, there's like so much cultural difference. And I had the privilege to actually travel so much in uh, my life to be able, first of all, I'm very, very well aware that my passport has opened me so many like 
borders literally, you know, because uh, we have a very um, powerful passport. And I'm very, very grateful for that. But also because I have uh, always prioritized education as a, and, and actually also self-development through traveling. So my parents always said, like, why don't you go more to university? And I'm like, because I needed money for traveling. And they never really understood because obviously in East Germany, you couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. And I just every single dollar, I stopped smoking. I stopped going out to restaurants. I stopped drinking alcohol, everything. And all that money went straight into a separate bank account so I could travel more. And then I traveled a lot. (laughs) So there's a yeah. saying which says uh, you can never find a small-minded traveler. Oh, I love that. So a person who travels, me and Carlene have traveled quite a bit. And for those who are listening, Carlene is my wife. And yeah, we travel quite a bit. And only when you interact with different people, you find out what their culture is, how what, what they perceive as important compared to other things, right? Whenever we travel, yeah, I'm a huge fan of craft beer, so is my wife. So we go to local bars and we just start talking to the bartenders because they're the best people who can tell you everything about the best food, you know, where to go, what to do. And I've had so many amazing stories from my travels as well. But yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Traveling does help quite a bit. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you were asking about communication, intercultural communication. Yes, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about what do you think are the biggest differences when you're working with maybe a leader in tech? Because there are also like characteristic differences from introverts in tech to extroverts in non-tech, let's just say it. Let's just make it really general right now so we can kind of have Mm -hmm. a quick on the topic. So what's the biggest cultural difference that you run into when you do your workshops or your talks um, about intercultural differences? Yeah, so of course, there's so many different differences which I've noticed, but some of the big ones which I've seen is in, for example, in Asia, we have the hierarchical culture where when there's work given there's one person who runs point and the other team members have to go through him or her but in the u.s it's more flat culture where everyone is independent so when you give a task and if you have remote teams because you were talking about remote teams a couple of minutes ago and if you say hey can you do this so a person in india for example would say yeah 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 without even thinking about deadlines or whether they would be able to do it but if you have to say, ask the same question for a person in the U.S., they would say, no, I, I have these things which are happening, so I won't be able to do that, right? So just in the way, in terms of the uh, talk about deadlines is different. So for that, I usually ask people to ask the follow-up question saying, hey, do you think this is doable? It's fine if it's not, but I just wanted to make sure based on your current workload, would this be a possibility? So asking those follow-up questions to understand their context. I know it sounds so simple, but I've been on both sides of the coin where I worked in India for a company in the US and then now I work 
in the U.S. with different clients. So I've been on both sides of the coin. So have, having that follow-up question to make sure the other person understands what the expectations are is the first big thing. And second, common, common mistake 101 in communication, especially in written communication, is not mentioning time zones and not paying attention to holidays. For example, mm-hmm. you would say, hey, can you send me the status report by 11 a.m.? Okay, you have themes in China, Germany, and uh, Vietnam, and Mexico, 11 a.m. freaking what time? Just that has caused so many issues in my real life experiences when I was working in various companies. So being cognizant in terms of time zones, and sometimes you may have holidays which you don't have, which the other countries have. So respecting those things are really important. So these are like two biggest common things which I've actually noticed. And it's it, it's a no-brainer. Whenever people come for me to help, then I would say, did you do this? Did you do the time zone thing? They would say, oh yeah, oh man, I didn't even think about it. It's a common, sometimes common sense and not common knowledge, which what I think is like a really simple thing. You know, it's not that common. And finally, one thing I want to mention was body language. And that is really important. So in meetings, you work, again, with people from different cultures. Some people, because from where they are from, they don't immediately ask questions. It doesn't mean that they don't, they don't understand things. It's just that they're hesitant to ask questions. So as a leader especially facilitating meetings or giving talks or trying to make big decisions with a group of people from mixed regions, you need to give everyone a chance, read their room in terms of if a person is trying to ask something but but is hesitant or whether everyone had a chance to go around the room. So that is one really common thing which I encourage my clients to do because when, when they say, man, I told these things and they never do it, they never do it. But then I said, did you ask them about it? Did you give them a chance or opportunity to actually you know, voice their views? And if if you think that person is going to be hesitant to voice their views, after the meeting, you can talk to them on a one-on-one basis saying, hey, uh, whatever name, uh, Alex, I know it seemed like you wanted to say something, but you didn't. Is there something you want to just share with me? I just wanted to make sure we are all on the same page, right? Just being human and then understanding that, right? Oh, and one final thing. I know when you talk about intercultural communication, I go on a whole thing. But one last thing I wanted to talk about was idioms and phrases. So in the U.S., people, and I was a person who had to learn this the hard way. So I still remember when I had my first full-time job at an insurance company here in the U.S., I was in this huge meeting and they assigned me a really critical task, which I had to complete. And then at the end of the meeting, my project manager said, may the force be with you. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then immediately the next thing, you know what I did? I went to Google what that shit actually means. It was a Star Wars reference. So <laughs> the point is people do not pay attention to the cultural difference because football is soccer in Europe. And exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't even do it. 
Right. Yeah. So the point is you need, so idioms and phrases, something you need to make sure because when people say this uh, product is the cash cow of the company, there's not an actual cow. Right. So those are the things which people need to pay attention to. So that's how you give crystal clear communication, being having clarity and no ambiguity when you actually make important decisions. So those are some things I coach people on as well. Those are yeah. just simple examples, though. I love that. So with my clients, to make them aware more and more that they are not dealing with someone who is from their own nationality and has cultural differences. Although I know all the idioms, although not all of them, although I know the most famous idioms, I would say, um, although I have been to the US, although I uh, deal with them all the time, but I pretend to be dumb so that when they use idioms and phrases with me or when they reference something that maybe in their team people couldn't know, then I'll just ask them, what is that? Or what do you mean with that? Or should I Google that now? You know, so that they basically have to become aware, like, what do you mean you don't know that? Everyone knows that. I'm like, well, every American may know that. And they're like, exactly. oh, okay. And so also when, when we basically communicate through our coaching and I'm asking them, so when are you getting that done? And they're like, tomorrow. I'm like, your tomorrow, my tomorrow. Because exactly. my tomorrow is like in two hours, your tomorrow is like in 15 hours, you know? So, so I'll make them aware in their communication with me because they can practice with me. I'm not, I know what they mean, but that doesn't mean that their team knows what they mean, you know? So I'll make them aware and they're like, oh my God, Monique, you know what I mean? I'm like, no, tell me about it. <laughs> So. I know, and 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 people don't realize that all these simple things mm-hmm. actually makes a lot of difference. And in my 14, 15 years of working in IT, I've seen shit go down just because <laughs> these things yeah. weren't actually uh, communicated properly. So, yeah. so there's this uh, really good book uh, which I read. It's called When Cultures Collide. It's by Richard Lewis. Oh. In that In that, he talks about the communication triangle, where he puts people in different countries across three points. Uh, One is overreactive. One is uh, questioning. I forgot the exact um, categories right now. I'm drawing a blank. But it's an amazing book that kind of opened up my horizon when it comes to communication. Because people in China, for example, may react differently, think differently than people yeah. in the U.S. compared to people in Germany, right? It's I highly recommend that book to your listeners because I read it. In fact, you can see my book list. It should be over here somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I have the book. Yeah, you can see it in the video, but when cultures collide. So that's, I highly recommend that book. That actually taught me a lot about intercultural communication. And my me and my wife used to do those workshops because she's American, I'm Indian, and people can relate to it as well. So Yeah, yeah. I love that. You know, it's very interesting because especially in East and Southeast Asia, we have this, this facing, uh, uh, saving face mentality. And a lot of times, um, especially in Western countries like in Germany, <laughs> that, has, that has no place there. And people don't know about it. And also in America, people don't know about it. Like losing face, saving face mentality, what that means and how that works. 
and how you have to work with it, right? Especially also in a team setting. So that's something because I lived in Asia, I traveled so much in Asia, I still live in Asia and I have worked in different countries in Asia as well, especially also in uh, team management positions. It's very interesting to teach that, you know, also that's, that has also a lot to do with why people don't ask questions because asking questions can make you lose your face in Asia, right? So they yeah, think exactly. like it makes them look dumb. And so right. how to make people ask questions is very interesting. All right, so we're almost at the end of our podcast, but I have one more question before we, we wrap it up. And I think it's really interesting for our listeners. So you mentioned a few times that you've been really introverted and you had to deal with a lot of anxiety. And mm -hmm. you're now speaking on big stages, you know, you're giving all these workshops and everything. So you must have done something that has at least got you out of your comfort zone or changed how you approach your introversion and your anxiety, or at least also decreased it, or maybe you got rid of it. So I want to know what you've done. Like, how did you, in a few steps maybe, or what was the biggest thing that changed for you, how you feel about being an introvert? Yeah, so apart from uh, me sharing my experience I've been through, which was kind of the trigger event, yeah, I started taking... I started looking for opportunities where I could get out of my comfort zone. So I already mentioned trying to make new friends, trying to take part in cultural activities, and then trying to have those part-time jobs. But another major thing which I did was in 2011, I uh, spent $3,000 of my own money to go to a tech conference. And I don't know how much context you have, but for your listeners, no one actually puts his or her own money to go to a tech conference. Either a company sponsors you or you go as a speaker, Then, which means the majority of the fees are already waived. But I, in 2011, put $3,000 of my own money to go to a conference because my company could, was not ready to sponsor me. People thought I was crazy, but I said, you know what? I just wanted to, a lot of people talk about conferences. I just want to check it out. Anywho, the point is at that conference, I started seeing people speak. I saw some great speakers. I saw some not so great speakers. And then I thought, you know what? I should start speaking because I have this fear of public speaking and then anxiety um, when I talk to people. What's the better way? Best, there's no other way, better way than actually speaking because you're forced to actually speak, right? right. And, slight, and it's slightly safe space because I can speak about my experience and content. But at the same time, I, I'll, I'll be forced to get out of my comfort zone and talk to people. So that was in 2011. And in 2012, I started speaking in small, small meetups. And then I started recording myself speak in terms of my body language. Then I started reading books on speaking. And like there, I read a book like How to Give Great Presentation, like Steve Jobs, then Talk Like Ted, uh, Presentation Patterns. Those were some books which were pretty inspiring to me. And then in 2012, this was in 2012, in 2013, I decided to give my first conference back. And for my first conference back, I still remember because I prepared for seven months. And then I did 23 trial runs with different groups of audiences and asked them feedback, like critical feedback from people who I trust. And then I gave my first conference talk and it was the best, voted the best conference talk of the year. And that kind of kickstarted my whole speaking career. So 
to answer your question of how did you make, make the change to become an international keynote speaker, 2013, that conference changed everything for me. And then the word spread that there's this really weird Indian dude. He's really funny in the stocks, but he has great content. And then the word started spreading and then people started calling me. And now, yeah, like this year alone, I had five keynotes and 16 conferences. I was going to speak until the pandemic came. So now we are trying to figure out some things. But the point is, uh, that's how I made that transition in terms of uh, keynote speaking. And in terms of changing who I am, I mean, not changing, but trying to transform who I am, I just was open to different things, different opportunities, which uh, helped me change roles from software testing to software development to leading teams to becoming a developer evangelist and now a tech entrepreneur, right? So those were, yeah, pretty much the things which I did, keeping an open mind and getting out of my comfort zone, so. Right. So, but if you were, like, when you were, in the moment so you would do the first let's say the first uh trial run for your for your keynote speech for example or you would try to meet new friends for the very first time and you get this insight you get like you think like oh my god what am i even doing here why am i even out these people like who are they what are you doing in the moment to get over that and still go there and be like, hi, so I'm Raj. I'm a uh, pretty funny, I think. And you, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so just to make sure I understood your question, it's like what pre-conference routine you do to give talks, right? How do you prepare yourself to? No, you literally, no. I want to know when, when you, when you do these moments, it does not, not only to do with the conference, but you know, when you had to overcome the introversion, the anxiety, whatever this was, right in the moment when you go to that person and try to introduce you and you feel this whole body sensation of anxiety come up or the introversion and all of these thoughts, Mm -hmm. what are you doing in the moment to still go and be like, oh, hi, I'm Rush, I'm uh, in tech, and you? (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 now I understand. So how do you suppress the introversion-ness when you actually talk to people, how I, what, what are some strategies I use for doing that? So first things first is I realized everyone was human and they started from somewhere. Everyone comes out as a baby and no one knows the world. Everyone comes out crying, right? So no one became an overnight <laughs> That's the truth. and no one became an overnight sensation. So yeah. first thing you have that mindset. Second, I prepared an elevator pitch whenever I try to meet people. So I uh, research based on what audience I'm already speaking to or meeting, people I'm meeting. I used to prepare a three-line sentence. For example, I would say now, yeah, I'm a tech career coach. I help people in the tech industry get into leadership roles, done. So the point is you prepare an elevator pitch. Within 15, 20 seconds, you need a, opening conversation. That is another strategy. Another strategy is the breaker conversation, which is some of my opening lines, not to pick up ladies, but mainly to interact is, uh, hey, I realized you had a really thick Texas accent like me. So can you, do you want to talk about that? And then people start laughing because for obvious reasons, I'm not Texas from Texas. So icebreaker conversation. So those are like the three strategies which I actually followed and since been following that too. I love that. People. 
Yeah, they are awesome. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much. Yeah, that's that's exactly because so I do love to meet new people. As you can see, I'm pretty easygoing and connecting with people. But I'm more a one-on-one or two-on-one kind of person. As soon as I'm going mm -hmm. to networking events, I just stand on site and I literally observe everyone. I just, I know everyone by the end. I know everyone inside out, but just observing them, you know, how would they move? How are they talking with everyone else? Do they do power moves? What's their body language? So like all these things, you know, like I'm kind of Robert Crane <laughs> standing on the right. side watching everyone. But do I talk to people? I mean, I, if I have to. <laughs> you so know? I, sh I should say I'm still a selective introvert. Right. Other people won't agree with that, seeing me talk to people. For yeah. me, I have... When I go to conferences, for example, I'm like 24-7, I can talk to people. But then for three days, I don't talk to anyone, including my wife. I have to detox. Like I need to read a book and I do meditation. I practice mindfulness. So I do more meditation and stuff to actually calm my nerves because as much as I say that I try to, that I'm an extrovert right now, mm -hmm. I'm still, I would say, a selective introvert. So I can actually... Yeah, I'm, I'm, okay, yeah, looks like there's a word for it. So I can <laughs> turn the on and off switch when I want to, but yeah. that switch needs to turn off at some point of time. Otherwise, I, yeah, I go crazy because I cannot yeah. handle that much noise for long periods of time. So I need Same. to detach and defocus as well. So Yeah, amazing. All right. Let's wrap it up. Two more questions that are like speedy questions for you. First of all, what does efficiency mean to you? Wow, that is. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good question. What does efficiency mean to me? So based on my experience, I would say it would be trying to optimize processes such that you can help to solve complex problems with simple solutions and also help to finish work way ahead of time. So that's what I think efficiency is, basically. I'm going to credit you when I use that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Next and last question for today. If you had to push the reset button on your life and business, but you keep all of the knowledge that you have, which of the three things would you do over and over again to basically build your success up again? That's another great question. Wow, you have all these questions you've been asking me. So <laughs> three things, just to make sure I understood. So three things, if I had to do any things all over again to help me be successful, what would it be, right? So I would say three things which are pretty close to me and that's how I live my life. First thing is finding your purpose. So I think, I believe in this world, everyone has a gift and we are here for a reason on this earth. It's our responsibility to actually explore these gifts and see what brings us impact and impacts other people's lives as well. And of course, you're going to face failures during this process, but still don't let that hinder you from who you are and what you need to do. So finding your purpose is one 
thing which I firmly believe in. Second thing is serving others to be happy in life. So when I got into the tech space, yes, I got all the fame and money, but that ended up me getting admitted to the hospital with the burnout, anxiety, and depression because I was chasing the wrong dream and I was not in my right mindset. Once I reframe my mindset to serve others and impact other people's lives to help them lead better lives, I felt much more happier. In fact, right now I work more than what I used to do when I actually work for other companies, but I don't feel that it's work. It's part of who I am. So serve people to lead a better life. And finally, I would say it's never too late to make a change. So for me, it took, me 14 years of my initial life to understand that I was having this false image about myself. I was doing what society asked me to do and I was letting other people rule my life and tell me what to do and what is best for me. And then I decided to change my life and it was a gradual process but I was able to turn it around and now people cannot believe, like people who grew up with me cannot believe that I'm on websites and news articles and magazines. And trust me, I'm an average Joe. Again, I'm an average guy. If I could do it, so can anyone. It just needs perseverance and effort. So those were the three things I would say which would help me succeed. I love that so much. It's amazing to hear that. Those are my two favorite questions that I ask everyone, but I never share them before because what comes out from your iteration, I think it's the best to share with everyone. Raj, thank you so, so much for being on this podcast and the show today. It's been such a pleasure to connect with you, to hear your story and to just share, yeah, your message with the, with the world. Thanks for having me. I had a really fun time and I've been listening to your other episodes as well it's really inspiring yeah. and keep doing great work and thanks for having me again thank you so much raj please also share with everyone where they can find you and what they can find there sure so all my life's work can be found on my website which is rajsubra.com which is r-a-j-s-u-b-r-a.com i'm super active on linkedin you can read my content and articles there and my Twitter handle is Epsilon11, E-P-S-I-L-O-N, number 11. So pretty much these three channels would get everything about me. So I love that. And everyone who listens regularly knows that they can find those links down below in the show notes as well. So check them out. And don't miss the next episode, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. And I'll see and speak to you next week, I guess. You've been listening to Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. We hope you've learned that you too can unlock your ultimate potential, how to control your time, create some clarity in your crazy life, and how to live life limitless. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please follow on Instagram at the Monique Lindner. We'll see you next time on Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Remember to slow down to speed up.